Amen. Amen. Give them a hand one more time. That'd be great. All right. Kids uh, can be dismissed to this direction over here for the children's worship service. Go over this way. And you all have a great time. Give mom and dad a high five as you head out. All right. Have you been blessed so far? Amen. Amen. We... We are in the Gospel of Mark. Here at Revolution Church, we like to go verse by verse through the Bible and just teach it and study it the way it's written. It's the safest way. You don't have to listen to my political agenda or you don't have to listen to what bothers me. We just go through the Scriptures and teach what Jesus said. And so a couple of months ago, I was, I was concerned like as to what I'm going to do when I get to Easter because I know I'm not going to be at the end of Mark where the resurrection happens. I'm going to be in the middle of Mark. I thought, what am I going to do? Do I just keep sticking with Mark, or do I ditch that for a week and just teach a resurrection message? But sure enough, as God is sovereign, guess where we're at? Jesus teaching about his own resurrection in advance. So it worked out perfectly. So we're going to just continue through Mark like we have been. Lauren's going to come up, and she's going to read the scripture for us this morning. Give her a hand. Welcome her this morning as she comes and reads. All right. And it'll be right there on the screen in front of you. Yeah. Amen. Me too. So um, y'all follow along on the screen above as, as uh, Lauren reads for us this morning. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began the t to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief of priests and the scribes, and they were condem will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to be God. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate it. So have you ever gotten someone else's mail in your mailbox? Have you ever accidentally opened it? I've done that. I, I, I just start going through the mail and just rip it up. I'm like, wait. This is not mine. Oh my gosh, this is my neighbor's, you know? So hey, imagine with me, if you will, your neighbor getting your mail. And it's a bill. And your neighbor brings it over to you and says, hey, this was in my mailbox by accident, and I'm sorry, but I accidentally opened it and think it was mine, and I saw it was a bill. So I just went ahead and paid it for you. That'd be cool, right? Now, what is going to be your reaction it depends. If it was the water bill for $53, like, oh, cool, well, let me buy you lunch sometime, you know, great, and shake their hand. But it was, if it was the IRS just caught up with you after years and years of back taxes, and it was $48,000, your reaction is going to be totally different, right? Because what it costs them to help you depends on the degree of thankfulness will determine the degree of thankfulness. And that's, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about what we just read this morning. So they're going on the road, and they're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a real place, obviously. It's the capital of, of Israel. But it is a, purposely a city set on a hill. It is 3,500 feet up. In fact, if you're starting from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth, it's 3,800 feet up. And so it is a hike to go up to Jerusalem, but they also meant it spiritually. If no matter where you were, you went up to Jerusalem. And what, what, what's important about this is the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, 
they tried to kill him. And now he's saying, we're going back to Jerusalem. And the disciples are like, what? Why would you want to go back there? They're trying to, because he's been spreading the gospel all around through the Gentile regions, Syria and Jordan and beyond. But now he's saying, it's time to go back to Jerusalem. And if you were Jesus, and you're walking to a place where they wanted to kill you, and you know that they're going to kill you, would you be walking quickly? No, you probably wouldn't. Yeah, when you take the kids to Six Flags, who's walking ahead? The kids are like, come on, come on, and they just can't wait to go. Jesus is actually walking this way. He is walking ahead of them, like, come on, guys, let's go, let's go, let's go. He is on a mission. He is determined to go to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And he's been telling them, he's told them, this is now the third time that he tells them that that's what is going to happen. So what we see here is an amazing example of the determination of Jesus, our Savior. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, and listen to this. This is written 700 years before Jesus was crucified. 700. Double America's age and then some. We're talking lots of history. And Isaiah spells out specifically what the Messiah would do. He says, I gave my back to those who strike. What did they do to Jesus? He had He had three different trials, and each time they beat him, they whipped him on his back. And then said, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. They grabbed, and of course the Gospels tell us that they smacked him in the face and his cheeks, and they ripped out his beard. Can you imagine that? That's excruciating, and that's just one small part of the torture. Those who pull out my beard, and I hide not my face from the disgrace and the spitting. In Isaiah 50, verse 7, it says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. How many of you know what flint is? It's like one of the hardest rocks there are. And flint was used, you could strike iron against flint and it would cause sparks. It was that hard. And Jesus says, through the prophecy of Isaiah, he says, I have set my face hard-nosed. I am pressed forward to this. Jesus did not shy away from that. He was determined to go to Jerusalem to die. And he had set his face like this, like this hard rock of flint right here. And it says, and they, it's talking about the disciples, the 12 disciples were amazed. They're like, he told us he's going to Jerusalem to die and look at him walk. Look at our Savior. He, he has got a fast pace going on. He is walking ahead of us and we're having to catch up. And it says, and those who followed, that I believe this is beyond the 12. This is other men and women who were followers of Christ, but they weren't part of the 12. They're not amazed. They're afraid. They're like, well, if he's gone there to die, are they going to kill us too? Or we, we don't want to lose our Savior. We've, we've, been, we've been following this guy for three years and watching him do miracles. And, and he says, this is a, last time he was there, they, they tried to kill him. And, and they, it says, and he began to tell them, and I believe that them, he pulls the disciples aside. If you read another gospel, it says he told them what was going to happen to them. So here's what Jesus uses as a teaching moment. He said, see, he said, look, and he's pointing up at the city and says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, Jesus used this title about himself 80 times, 80 times, more than any other title about himself. He called himself the son of man. And today in our Western world, might be thinking, What's that? What's the big deal about that? If you're a guy, you're a son of a man. You know, you had dad and a mom. That's not what this prophecy is about at all. Let's talk about what the Son of Man meant to the Jews. It was such a significant title that when he said it to the Pharisees, they picked up stones to kill him because they knew what it meant. You see, John 1, 
John begins his gospel before time. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, who is the Word? Verse 14 answers that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Jesus. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What the title Son of Man means is when God took on human form and became a man. So God the Son became a man is what the title Son of Man means. Colossians 2 says, For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, if you wrestle with whether Jesus is God or not, you just have to take the Bible's word for it, for one. Some people claim the Bible never says Jesus was God. I'm not sure what verse they're reading when they read this. In him, Jesus, the whole fullness, not part of God, not part of deity, all the fullness of deity was in Jesus Christ in bodily form. And that's what made him the son of man. And see, Jesus goes on to predict incredible details of his own death. None of you in the room want to die, right? Not anytime soon, right? And imagine, though, if you said, hey, in just a short amount of time, a few days, here's what's going to happen to me. And I go into specific details. I'm going to be in an intersection at 35 and Beltway, and I'm going to go through a green light, and someone's going to run the light, and it's going to be a red Ford pickup truck, and it's going to T-bow me, and it's going to kill me. And I'm going to, I'm going to be out there on the road. They're going to, the ambulance is going to come and resuscitate me, and I'm going to come back for a little while, and then I'm going to die again, and that'll be it. And you're like, hey, what are you talking like that for? But what if I told you all those specific details? Jesus gives way more details than I just gave you right here. Let's, let's just look at what Jesus says. This is now about the third time Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to die. And are they getting it? <laughs> no. In fact, each time he tells them he's going to die, he tells them he's going to rise again. And yet when he does, they're like, who stole the body? Where's he at? And they're like, did you not listen? But you know what? Gary can be pretty hard-headed too to where I don't listen to God like I should. I, anybody else feel like that this morning? How did we know, how did Jesus know what was going to happen to him? And why didn't the rabbis and the disciples know? And how did, how did he know? So let's look at Jesus. There's two reasons that Jesus knew what was going to happen. Number one was prophetic scripture. There are not just a handful, but hundreds of scriptures in the Old Testament written hundreds of years in advance that give you the, the resurrection, death, burn, resurrection in specific detail. You explain that to me. You tell me how Isaiah, which no historian questions when Isaiah was written. There's none of them. You can do carbon-14 dating. You can do all the science you want to do. Isaiah wrote incredible detail about the death, burn, resurrection of Christ. You say, well, Jesus just read it and then fulfilled it. Right. He's like, hey, okay, guys, you nailed me. Okay, good. Now you put a crown of thorns on my head. You know, we, we go to ridiculous lengths to not believe the Bible. This, here's, let me just give you some examples, and you read this with me with an open mind. Luke 18, 31, and he says, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. See, that's where I know he took the twelve aside from the crowd. We're going up to Jerusalem. He said, And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus coming to be the Savior of the world. And he, said, he just walked them through. He says, hey, remember in Genesis it says this. Remember in Isaiah it says this. Remember in, in uh, uh, Zechariah it says these things. And he's going through the scriptures with them saying, this is, uh, this is all to be fulfilled. What's going to happen to me? You see, do you remember when Jesus was born, Herod asked the teachers, where's Messiah supposed to be born? And they're like, well, we've been reading the Old Testament. It says Bethlehem. They, they read the Old Testament enough to know about Jesus' birth, 
right? And so and that, that, that prediction came true that it says he'd be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah 11.13 prophesied that Jesus would be sold for how many pieces of silver? 30. Not 35, not 40. Jesus would be sold by who? Who sold him? Judas, yeah, we all wake up. You had a lot of breakfast. Wake up with me here. How many pieces of silver? 30, okay? That was prophesied hundreds of years in advance. And then in Numbers 21, 9, Jesus taught about it in John chapter 3, how that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And what, was, what, did, that, what did that stick look like? It looked like a cross. He said, I will be lifted up the same way, which is fascinating because the three times previous they tried to kill Jesus how did they try to do it? What were they going to do to him? Stone him. So wouldn't it make sense if you've been try- people try to stone you a few times, that if you're going to predict your own death, you- the odds are, well, they probably will try that again. No. That means you're not going to kill me, the Jewish people. I'm going to be killed by the Romans. So he's predicting here in incredible detail. In Psalm 34, it predicts that even though Jesus would be beaten badly, punched, kicked, Nails through his wrist, between these two bones here, through his feet, not one bone would be broken. That prophecy came true. In Psalm 22, it talks about how they will gamble for his clothes. How could Jesus make that happen? But this is, and you know what? The Roman soldiers, they could have said, we didn't gamble for his clothes. No, they didn't deny it. There, these people were still alive. and they were, they, It was even those Roman soldiers that went to the priest and said, hey, He's gone. He resurrected. And these are pagans saying, this man that you had us kill, we were guarding the tomb, and these bright glowing guys knocked us down and rolled away the stone, and Jesus is gone. And they said, don't tell anybody. In fact, we'll pay you lots of money to just tell people that the disciples stole them. You know, where, did they, where did these stories come from? And, and yet, think about it. If you're the Jewish rabbis, and, and you've been thinking Jesus is the bad guy. Jesus is the bad guy. Let's just kill him. He's, he's a false prophet. But then he actually rises from the dead. And you still don't believe? Seriously, Roman soldiers are telling you, he's gone. We'll pay you money to shut up. That's going on in our world today. People know deep down the truth. But because they've got an agenda whether it's power or pleasure, those two are their gods and they're not going to accept the resurrection. Even if someone told them, eyewitnesses who have no vested interest. In fact, these, these soldiers who were guarding the tomb could have been executed for losing the prisoner, for the, the one who they were supposed to be guarding. So they're just telling the truth for every reason they should be. In Psalm 69, he talks about how while he's on the cross, they would give him vinegar or sour wine to drink. Are you talking incredible details here on these prophecies? And I could go on and on, but I'll give you a few more. And then they predict the very words that Jesus would say on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus, his whole life called God the Father. Father, Holy Father. This is the first time in his life he says, my God. Because he is being in the full human sense of taking upon all our sins and therefore, God the Father has to turn his back on him because he can't look upon sin. As Jesus absorbs your sin and my sin, and he feels that abandonment on the cross. Zechariah, again, about 625 years before it, talks about how 
let me read it to you. It says, And I, the Lord, this is Jehovah speaking, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look upon me, who's speaking here? Jehovah God, okay? On me whom they have pierced. If you don't think Jesus is God, here's God in the Old Testament saying, they will pierce me in the form of Jesus Christ. Another prophecy here, Isaiah 53 it says the Messiah would be oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They predicted that Jesus would, would not even testify on his own behalf. Isaiah 53, 9 talks about how he would make his grave, he'd be buried with the wicked. Who died on either side of Jesus? Two criminals who admitted that they deserved what they were getting, and with a rich man in his death. Whose tomb was Jesus put in? Joseph of Arimathea. All these things weren't made up after the resurrection of Christ. These were prophesied hundreds of years before. How are these guys doing this? Isaiah, Zechariah, David writing the Psalms. How do they do this? The Holy Spirit of God told them what would happen in the future. If you have trouble believing the Bible, just read these prophecies. Nobody is disputing when Isaiah was written. You read Isaiah 53 for yourself and tell me it doesn't describe in detail how Jesus died on the cross. The only way this is true is if the Bible is true. So Jesus predicts that he will be delivered over. The word delivered over means like snitched on. Okay, he'll be betrayed by, by Judas. He also predicts that he would be, who he'd be delivered to? To the chief priests and the scribes. And the scribes is, is Pharisees and Sadducees. Did these guys like each other? No, this is like someone today saying, I will go be, I'll be impeached by the Congress and all the Democrats and all the Republicans will vote against me. Like that would ever happen. And here, that's exactly what happened is that all the scribes and all the Pharisees were against Jesus. And it says, and they will condemn him. They will, they will sentence him. Okay. He had, there was three different trials, six different parts. He uh, went before Annas, Caiaphas, then he went before the Sanhedrin. Then he went before Pilate and Herod. And then back to Pilate. All this is happening in a matter of 48 hours. And each time they're beating him and abusing him. You say, Gary, the, you know, they found him guilty. Why? But this was a totally illegal trial. Let me give you seven quick reasons here. Number one, no trial was to be held during a feast time. What feast is happening right now? The Passover. It's illegal to have a, a trial on a holiday. But they break that law. Number two, each member of the court was to vote individually. There were se the Sanhedrin was 70 priests, and they'd go down the line. They'd say, Brother Shmuel, how do you vote? Brother Josephus, how do you vote? And they'd go right down the line, everybody'd say for or against, for or against. And all they just said, hey, everybody against them? Yeah, we're all against them. All right, let's go. And, and he couldn't even face his accusers, but Jesus was convicted by acclamation instead of by a, a, a proper vote, which was illegal. Number three, it was illegal because the death penalty was given, if, if that ever is given, a night must pass before the sentence was carried out. However, it was only a few hours before Jesus was placed on the cross. Number four, the Jews had no authority to execute anyone. And yet that's what they're calling for is crucify him, crucify him. Number five, no trial was to be held at night. But this trial was held all night and ended before dawn. Number six, the accused was to be given counsel or representation, but Jesus had none. I mean, these are similar to American laws, right? And then number seven, I like that number, showing that man was completely against Jesus and breaking every single law. The accused was not to be asked self-incriminating questions. What do we call that here in America? I plead the, the fifth. 
Same principle of law right here, but yet Jesus was asked over and over again to incriminate himself. Jesus predicts a lot more details. <clears throat> it says that, uh, he says, you have heard this blasphemy. This is the high priest, Annas, speaking here. He says, what's your decision? And they all condemned him, deserving death. Seventy very religious men who knew their Old Testament, obviously not well enough, 100% of them vote against Jesus, even though all he did was love people, feed the hungry, heal the blind, heal lepers. What did he do? They, they wanted to kill him, and they all killed him because they were more in love with their religion than they were in love with God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you want to be a Christian, I'm not here to push a religion on you at all. Okay, I'm tired of religion. I hate religion. The people who crucified Jesus were religious people. I'm here to tell you about a person who loves you and wants to, to bless your life and, and to guide you and to comfort you and take you to eternity with him. I'm here to tell you about a person, and his name is Jesus. So Jesus knew all this because Jesus knew the Scriptures, but it's more than that, right? Jesus knew this through personal omniscience because, after all, Jesus is God. So he knows the future. This is the same one who told Peter, go fishing, and at the exact same time you cast your net in, I'm going to have a fish come by, get in your net, and he has a coin in his mouth. Take that coin, which is very valuable, pay your taxes and mine. Jesus knew exactly where that would be and exactly the time that it all would happen. Jesus met a woman at the well, never met her before, told her all about her five husbands, including the guy she's living with now. He knew all of her details, and she was totally astonished, and she said, I perceive that you're a prophet. She wasn't a blonde, obviously. Mark 13, 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Jesus prophesied that the temple of Jerusalem, which was a massive structure, took 65 years to build. He says, there's coming a day real soon that not one stone will be left on another. And, and you know what? It totally was. Literally not one stone left on another because the Romans came in and were told that there was gold buried in the stones of the temple. So they literally pried off every stone looking for the gold and found none. But Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which is a historical fact, Jesus predicted it and it happened. So they're going to kill him for two charges of blasphemy. The first blasphemy is, he says, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another. That's not what Jesus said. He said, this temple will be destroyed. He said, but you've, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. Doesn't the Bible call your body the temple? Okay, yeah, we are bodies. So Jesus was talking about this. They took his words out of context, which people love to do all the time, and they took his words out of context and said, oh, he claimed he was going to destroy the temple, which was blasphemy. And then secondly, then when they asked him, are you the Christ, he said, the same words that the burning bush said to Moses, I am. He claimed to be God. He says, and you will see the Son of Man, which is the prophecy that Daniel gave of the Son of Man being fulfilled when God becomes human flesh, and I am the incarnation of God. And because of that, they wanted to kill him. So back to the details of his death. He, he says, I'll be condemned. I, I will die. If, if they had sentenced him to life in prison or if they had set it in, sent him to just a flogging and release him like Pilate wanted, this prophecy wouldn't have been true. But Jesus predicts his own death. And here in Luke 23, it says, a third time, Pilate said to him, why? What evil has he done? Pilate, who was a political knucklehead, 
Even Saul, I don't know what you guys want to kill him for. He's done nothing wrong. I find no guilt and definitely no guilt deserving death. And number five of these predictions says, I'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. It won't be you that kills me. You're going to turn me over to the Romans and they will execute me. He says, they, they will mock him. So he predicted that people would make fun of him. And, and, and of course, that was also prophesied in the Old Testament. And Matthew 27 says he saved others. He cannot save himself is what they, they said mocking him. You know, you know what's ironic about their jokes? They say he can't save others. He saved, he saved others, but he can't save himself. What they were totally missing was going over their head is by not saving others, he's, by not saving himself, he saved others. If Jesus had gotten down off that cross, which he had every right to do, he said, I could have called thousands of legions of angels from heaven and get down off this cross. But he chose to stay. And because he chose to stay, we get to live forever. See, by not getting himself down, that's how he saved others. And they, here's what they say, which is so, so dishonest. So dishonest. And people say this all the time. Well, if I saw a miracle, I'd believe. They said, if he came down off the cross, we'll believe in him. He did better than that. He died, three days later rose again, and guess what? They still didn't believe. You know, when people start bargaining with God, saying, well, I believe in God if he did this, or if he did this, if he did this. No, you wouldn't. He's already done enough. He's done so much more for you and me than we ever deserve, and yet we choose not to believe. Jesus' best friend said in his gospel that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. It's all about our lifestyles. There was a time in my life where I walked far away from God and I did what Gary wanted to do. And I never, I never thought God doesn't exist or whatever. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I, I just, just act like none of this was real. I mean, I knew in my heart and my head that it was, but I just lived like it wasn't. And we, we can be blinded by our sin. We, where we so much want to say, well, maybe God doesn't exist, and we have all kinds of reasons and rationalizations. So then he predicts that they will spit on him. This is the least painful but most disgusting thing Jesus endures. The least painful but the most humiliating. Anybody in here ever been spat upon? Imagine... 70 religious men who claim to love God all walking by you and spitting on your face. I, I can't even comprehend that. When, when uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to get the body of Jesus, I just picture them taking a clean cloth and wiping his face. The spit off his face. The spit that had drawn going down his body and mingled with blood. You see, people say, oh, I don't know how I could believe in a hell. Do you look what they did to our Savior? Spit in God's face. And we, we live our lives like, God, I don't care if you created me. I don't care if you created this universe. I am going to live my life. It's not yours. You've been bought with a price. You, you need, we all need to ask God to forgive us for the way we do things because we look at this and say, if I was there, I wouldn't have spat upon him. Don't be so sure. 
the whole crowd who said three days earlier, Hosanna, Hosanna, three days later going, crucify him, crucify him. We are fickle, unpredictable, undependable people. And you know yourself as well as I know myself. We tell ourselves, I'll never do that again. And it's a short period of time, we did it again. Right? We, we all fall into that trap. We are very incredibly fickle. And they flogged him. This was no mild thing. Don't picture just some single whip. This is, they used what's called a cat of nine tails. It was nine leather straps, and they would put hooks and bones and even sometimes pieces of glass in it. So when they whipped it, it stuck and it grabbed the flesh and ripped it away every time they did that. They did this all night long. I'm amazed at Jesus he was even able to carry a 200-pound cross. He did all this. Now, you say, Gary, why are you going into such detail? This is, this is resurrection study. You shouldn't be talking resurrection. You're talking about the death. I want you to know what that bill that came in the mail, how much it was worth and how much it was paid, so you know how much to be thankful. That's what we're talking about this morning. And then they, he predicts that they would kill him, and even spe- and says in Matthew's gospel that he says specifically he would be crucified. He could have been killed a number of different ways, but he specifically says he crucified. And number 10, the best part of all, the best prophecy, all this other, you could say, well, he just got lucky. Tell me how many people predict their own resurrection, and it comes true. Now, the, a lot of people, we need to understand the difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. He was dead, and he was in the tomb for how many days? Four days. And Jesus raised him back to life. But later on, Lazarus died again because he was only resuscitated, brought back to life. He wasn't resurrected. There's a song on the radio right now. It's, it's popular. It's a good song, but it talks about healings. And I've seen cancer and depression disappear. And it says, we've seen real life resurrections. No, no you haven't. <laughs> There's only been one resurrection. That's Jesus Christ. You can say, I've seen people raised from the dead. Great. Glory to God. But you haven't seen resurrections. That's about to come in the future. There's a difference because once you're resurrected, you never die again. And if you know Jesus Christ, you will be resurrected. And guess what? If you don't know Jesus Christ, you'll be resurrected too. Daniel talks about two resurrections. One that's a resurrection to life eternal and one that's a resurrection to judgment. It's your choice which one you get to be a part of. You know, there's a lot of philosophers and college professors who talk about something called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't actually die. He was badly beaten and he was crucified and then he fainted or swooned. He passed out, so they took him down thinking he was dead. They stuck him in a tomb, which he was so nice and comfortable. So for three days of rest, he got out, pushed a 550-pound stone away and walked out. Do you see the ridiculous lengths people will go to to believe Jesus didn't rise from the dead? They would explain a swoon theory. There's a, there's a preacher on the radio, J. Vernon McGee. He's since died, but he's still on the radio. And he would do a question and answer session on his radio show. And one day this lady wrote him a letter, back in the day when people actually wrote letters. And she said, Dear Pastor McGee, my pastor taught the swoon theory on Easter Sunday that Jesus didn't really die. He just was really sick and hurt. But after three days, he got up and walked away. What should I do? And he said, dear lady, you need to beat your pastor. You need to beat him for 12 hours with a cat of nine tails. You need to punch him in the face repeatedly. You need to put a crown of thorns on his head. Put nails through his hands and through his feet. Let him hang in the sun for three and a half hours. And then let them stick a spear in his side and put him in a tomb and see if he gets up and walks away. The ridiculous measures people go to to not believe what God teaches us clearly. 
This is um, Dr. Frederick Zagibi. He's the forensic researcher and doctor of medicine in New York City. And he said the swoon hypothesis is completely unfounded and contradicted by medical evidence. But let me tell you something, evidence doesn't matter. Evidence doesn't matter. They, they, the world keeps telling us, oh, I believe in science, not in faith. And they, they look at science and say, this is not a baby. It has its own brain waves, its own heartbeat. It, it, it feels pain, but it's not a baby because it's inside of a woman. And science says it's a baby. But we, we don't believe in science if it's a part of our agenda. But anyway, it goes against medical evidence. He said the long spikes that penetrated Jesus' feet would have caused massive swelling and severe pain beginning in the first hour on the cross. And over the next few days would have been massively swollen and infected beyond any immediate healing. Jesus would not have been able to stand or even walk on his feet for at least a month or longer. And yet somehow he got up and just, oh, I feel better now. Let me roll away this stone and walk out. I cannot repeat it enough that people go to ridiculous measures not to believe the truth. So what does the resurrection prove? I finally get to the Easter part. What does the resurrection prove? Number one, it proves that there is a God who is supernaturally involved with his creation. God miraculously intervenes in his creation often. People are like, where's God? Where's God? This right here, amongst many other miracles, is way God proves that he is involved and he does love his creation. Number two, it confirms who Jesus is and that his message is true. If a man stands up and says, hey, I will be beaten, I will be flogged, I will be spat upon, I will be crucified, and three days later, I'm coming back and nobody's stopping me. I think we need to listen to him. I think some people ought to pay attention to what Jesus has to say on any subject. Any, how to raise your kids, what a marriage is, how to live life, about money, all that. If Jesus did that, I think he deserves a, a listening ear. Number three, it proves that our greatest enemy, death, is defeated. Most of you in this room, if not all of you, have lost someone you love. If there's no God and we all evolved and we're just here by accident, you will never see them ever again. Ever. They're going to push up daisies just like you are. But if this man told the truth, he died for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again, there is resurrection, there is hope, and you have hope of seeing loved ones again. We all have hope of seeing one another again, not just temporarily, but for all eternity. You see, I, I want to appeal to your logic through history, but also want to appeal to your heart. I believe that every human being, because Ecclesiastes says eternity is written on your heart, I believe there's something deep down inside you that knows this is true. Picture uh, an egg. It's a duck egg. And it, it's, it's in the grass over there under a tree. And it begins to crack. And this duck pushes its way out. And it looks for its mom. And the duck wants to go to water. The duck wants to go to the pond. The pond is, is, is a half a mile away. But it wants to swim. It's never seen water before. It's never swam before. But it knows where the water is, and it goes, and it gets in the water and waddles instantly because it was born to swim on the water. Ducks on the pond right there. There's something deep inside you that knows that there's something out there, that it's heaven, that it's eternity. And that's why children grow up believing that and have to be indoctrinated to not believe in God 
because it is within us. It is, it is who we are and what we're created for. Number four, it, because Jesus is alive, you can be connected to him in an eternal, personal relationship. I am not pushing a religion. I'm introducing you to a person. His name is Jesus. And if you're not sure if he's real, let me just challenge you to have the courage, if you're listening this morning, have the courage to get alone and have a conversation with him. Jesus, if you're real, I'm told that you're alive and that you're in heaven looking down and you're going to be coming back someday. I want to know you. If you're real. If, and and I, I challenge you to have the courage to have that conversation. Romans 8, 11 says, If the spirit of him, Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you've entered into a personal relationship, you are filled with the spirit of God, guess what? He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that brought Jesus back to life, if he lives in you and you're saved, you're born again, guess what? When you die, that same spirit will resurrect your body. That's the promise that Jesus provides. That's the guarantee. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, since we believe, this is a conditional verse. If you've not believed in Christ, this verse does not apply to you. But if you have trust in Christ and you believe that Jesus died and he rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. Falling asleep is a nice way of people saying people that are dead. If you trust in Christ, you will be raised from the dead just like Jesus was. He goes on to say, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. I used to work, when I was in college, up at Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, I used to work at a cemetery. And I worked with this other guy, and I liked to mow the lawn, and he liked the weed eat. So we were perfect partners because I hated the weed eater. Like, bling, 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 bling. He could start the first time. I'm like, how do you do that? So I'm like, I'll push this mower. So I'd push this mower around, mowing around all these tombs, and he'd weed around these tombs. And I thought one day, what if, I, I just thought I was really important because I had a job over a lot of people, but I thought I was really important. But anyway, I, I thought, what if this verse comes true? What if the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes back and all these graves go, boom, 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 boom. I'm like, that would be so cool. It didn't happen, but it made me think about it a lot. And it goes on to say here, it says, then, then we who are alive, if you're alive when Jesus come, comes back and you know him, you'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Number five, what does the resurrection prove? Because Jesus is alive, every problem you have, think about it. You have your list, right? What's number one on your list? Don't tell me. Just think about it. What is it? Number two, if you want to go down to 90, 37, I don't care. But everything on that list of problems that you have is infinitely small in the light of eternity with Jesus. And conversely, every problem you have is bigger than you can handle if this is not true. No wonder the suicide rate is going up not down. It's, is it a strange coincidence that the generation that goes to church the least has the highest suicide rate in American history? There is a connection. And it, your problems will become insurmountable. Your guilt will become more than you can handle if you don't know Christ. Number six, because Jesus is alive, reunion with loved ones is made possible. And I'm looking forward to that. Let's say I met someone on the street and I said, hey, are you an Astros fan? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm an Astros fan. Really? Have you been to some games? Oh, no, I don't have time for that. Okay, so you watch them on television. No, not really. Okay. Um, you have Jersey though, right? 
No, no, they're too expensive. So can you name some players? Um, there's a short guy, Jose something. Do you know who coaches the Astros? No. And you're an Astros fan? Yeah, yeah, I'm an Astros fan. Do you realize, you know where I'm going with this, right? Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, so you go to church. Oh, no, no, I don't, I don't believe in organized religion. Oh, so the church that Jesus started and says, I died for this church, I love my church, you don't have time for that. So can you name some Bible verses? Well, no, I mean, I kind of read the Bible. I mostly just pray, which is very selfish on your part. You do all the talking, God does all the listening. I want to ask you this morning, not, I, 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 yes, I'm trying to be funny, but at the same time, I'm trying to be bluntly serious without hurting your feelings, but if I hurt your feelings, that's fine, because I'd rather have your feelings hurt and you go to heaven than to just smooth everything out and preach a positive message and everybody goes to hell. There's a, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, that on judgment day, people will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And he says, looks at him and goes, do I know you? The verse literally says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Do you understand there's a lot of religious people in the world that are going to split hell wide open? I hope you're not one of them. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? You see, Jesus got your mail, but not by accident. He took the debt that you could not pay, and he paid it. Not with cash, but with blood. With the, he poured out his, literally poured out his life for you and paid that debt. How thankful you are depends on how much you realize how much he suffered. And our, our Lord Jesus suffered way more than any of us can even comprehend. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. There's that envelope. He paid it. That he stood against us with the legal demands. This he set, nailing it to his cross. Romans chapter 6 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You see, you know how someone becomes a Christian? They say, I'm, I consider myself dead. Dead, man don't have, dead men don't have rights. They have no choices. They give it all to God and say, Lord, here I am. I give myself to you because you gave everything for me. I trust you to save me from my sins. And when you die to self, you become alive in Jesus Christ. Have you made that decision? Rick and Chenda were just a couple of people who gave a testimony of when they came to Christ. I, I was nine years old when I came to Christ. And as the first time, I always knew because of Easter, that Jesus died, but I never knew why Jesus died until I went to vacation Bible school and I heard Dr. Boffin preach the gospel, how Jesus died for Gary, a sinner, and I trusted him to save me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I, I just want you to give God just a couple of minutes here. But if you've never put your faith in Christ, what an amazing day to do so. You're, you and I are not going to go to heaven because we are good Eliana's not going to go to heaven because she just got baptized today. You're not going to go to heaven because you keep Ten Commandments because the truth is we don't. Your hope of eternity is because Jesus died for you. He buried all your sins in his grave 
and he rose again victorious so that you can live forever with him. Would you give your life to him this morning? Why not in the silence just talk, have a conversation with Jesus? Would you have the courage to do that? And maybe you're like, Gary, I'm still not convinced. Don't talk to me. Talk to Jesus. Say, Lord, if, if, if you're real, let this sink into my mind. Let this sink into my heart. Thank you, Lord, for, for loving us enough to prove it on the cross. Thank you, more importantly, that you rose again victorious so that this life and all the pain and misery that it holds is not the end, but we have eternity with you because of the resurrection. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. If you made that decision to trust Christ, please contact me. I'd love to have a conversation with you. We're going to do just a, a few short question and answers. So, man, if you don't mind coming to help me with that. And so we're going to try to keep this uh, maybe a little shorter than normal because we do want to get out. I know the kids could care less about question and answers. They're ready to hunt the eggs out there. So, um, okay. Um, probably two and three you will skip because they're not questions, I don't think. Hello, hello. Okay. What did you mean when you said the evidence doesn't matter? I would argue that the evidence of history of Christ's life, death, and resurrection absolutely matters. The evidence exists. If we seek it, we are presented with it, and we choose to take what we will. The gospel is all or nothing. Jesus was either the only son of the creator of the universe or a very nice, crazy person. The Bible is either the word of the living God or a useless rag. I'll have to go back and watch the video because I don't remember the context of saying it. Yeah, I thought it was being sarcastic. I'm talking about people who are lost. Say, oh, the evidence doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want to do. I thought that was the context. The evidence absolutely does matter. Um, yes, that, I'll, go, I'll go to the next question. Question, did Jesus get stoned? No, he did not. He, he avoided being stoned three times, and he was crucified, not stoned. Okay. Um, I'm going, someone just, yep, here we go. Uh, not Q&A, all right. <laughs> is that all of them? Okay. I think and, so. And if you have a question, you can raise your hand if you do. Otherwise, we'll be done with that. Yep, oh, that, that looks like all the questions. Lauren's just scratching her ear. I thought you, I thought you were raising your hand. <laughs> okay, great. Hey, let's stand. And we'll be dismissed in prayer. Thank you, Amanda. Man, it is so great to see so many new people in the Lord's house. Let's give them a hand. We're glad you're here. All right, Pastor Stan, my partner in ministry here, I'm going to ask him to dismiss us in prayer.